Welcome everybody to our show today, Hansel Minutes. I'm here with my great friend, Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Astrid. And I know this looks a lot like Hansel Minutes because we have Scott Hanselman on the show, but in fact, this show is called Greater Than Code. Yes, yes. I'm glad somebody remembered that. <laughs> so yeah, today we have Scott Hanselman, and Scott Hanselman is a podcaster extraordinaire. He has recorded over 500 podcasts, and he actually shows up to his own show every week. <laughs> Yeah, 585 shows every Thursday for, I don't know, 12 years. 12 years. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a marathon. So, Scott, we like to start the show with origin stories. So can you start with the very, very beginning of how you got started and work all the way up to what you're doing now? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a long time. You got 40 years? Well, Uh, you can just like focus on your superpower. Yeah, yeah. What's your superpower and how did you acquire it? I think that I finally figured out after all these years that I am probably a teacher and not a software engineer. I was getting into trouble when I was 10 or 11 doing things I wasn't supposed to be doing. And there was a meeting at the school when the teachers uh, had time back in the day, if you remember when teachers had time to do meetings like that, about what are we going to do with this child. And they said that they would loan me the computer. It was the computer because we didn't have one per room or one per kid. There was just one computer. On Friday nights, my dad would take his pickup truck and he would back it up to the building and we would steal the computer. And it was one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge things. Because if they did it for me, they'd have to do it for everybody. And then as long as I had the computer back by Sunday at 5 p.m., then it would be cool and we could have it set up for school on Monday. And that kept me off the street away from the bad kids I wasn't supposed to be hanging out with because we had a kind of a gang problem in my neighborhood and I was making fake IDs. (laughs) And that was before you had a 3D printer. I was like voted most likely to be, you know, convicted of a white collar crime. (laughs) I wouldn't have been a gangster, but I would have been the gangster's accountant. (laughs) (laughs) So the point is that if a teacher hadn't decided to loan me this Apple II, like, I don't know, I would have been like the parrot from Aladdin. I wouldn't have actually been Jafar, but I would have definitely been Gilbert Gottfried. (laughs) So then after a couple of months of that, it was clear that I had some kind of ability with computers. And then one day I got home and my dad's van was gone and I was walking up an empty driveway and I was like, oh, crap, what's going on? They had sold the van and bought a Commodore 64. Oh, yeah. So then it became a problem of not getting me outside. Like I wouldn't leave the house. So then they had to build in a ratio for our house where for every one hour inside, I had to be outside for an hour. So then I would be on the computer for an hour and then they would push me out the door and I'd have to sit on the porch in the sunshine for an hour until they would let me in again. Wow. So where did that first early obsession with computers, where did it stem from? I don't know because there's no background. We don't have – so no one in my family had done any college education. My mom was a zookeeper. My dad was a fireman who drove an oil truck. So there was no STEM background or science. Um, My brother is a fireman. Uh, My grandmother was a nurse. There's no context for it. So I think I was just – just came out this way. I don't know why. (laughs) I will say that my dad took stuff apart. One of our family hobbies was going to the, the dump. I don't know. I always thought this was a thing people did. Yeah. Apparently it's not. It's not a thing. Is it well, a now thing? it's good, you go though, right? Well, it's good. <laughs> I go to Google now because I don't want to get dirty. But like going to the dump was a weekend thing. 
people dump stuff there. That's and like, why would you not? I remember like one of my best memories of my dad, like a classic my dad thing, is we went to the dump, and somebody like three cars down was throwing out a uh, barbecue, and my dad is like, "Stop! What are you doing? That's a perfectly good barbecue." And then he has to convince the people at the dump to let him take it out because you're not – it's supposed to be a one-way thing, right? You're not uh-huh. supposed to take stuff out of the dump. So he took that barbecue off that guy's truck and took it home and then sandblasted it and painted it, and we ate on it that night. Wow. That frugalness. I think it's a very Scottish thing. Our family is um, is Scottish. The last name Hanselman is a German name, but we're all Cormacs and Lawsons, and we're from Carnoustie, Scotland. Our family gatherings are – bagpipes and kilts and it's very scottish um and the scottish people are notoriously cheap <laughs> and amongst my uncles there's like this you'll never catch a cold from a scot because a scot never gives anything away <laughs> so you know we we're we're cheap 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 people so now it's uh it's it's goodwill for me but uh junkyard trips and being generally frugal which is cool because my wife is super cheap you're compatible that way. Everything she yeah. does is, is goodwill. And, and what's cool is that she wears really bright colors and she can find those kind of like outfits that no one else could pull off. Nice. She gets them all at goodwill. She's like, I just got all these compliments at work and this outfit cost me $6, you know? So that's, mm-hmm. that's us. Yes. Our first conversation always starts with like, how much did that cost? This was only five bucks. And let me tell you why. And then we're like, cause it's the, it's the, it's the hunt, right? As much right. as it is the, uh, the, the capturing. So fast forward, became a software engineer because, um, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't hack it at college. So after a bunch of college visits, I ended up going to Portland Community College and I took me 11 years to graduate. I graduated in 2003, but I started in 1992. What did you study at community college? I studied, so it was the first year that Portland Community College had software engineering and they were juxtaposing it and they made a big deal out of it. This is a big deal because it was a feud between the computer science department and the software engineering department because one, each one thought that they were the one true religion. (laughs) And the juxtaposition that they made was that software engineering is the practice of making software, which they didn't believe was being taught in schools, while Mm -hmm. computer science was teaching everybody compiler theory and a bunch of stuff that ultimately didn't help them ship. Makes sense. So I was the first year of the computer science, of the the software engineering group, rather. And also the next 10 years? And then I did (laughs) two years and was working at night uh, my first job was doing Visual Basic. I was making ten bucks an hour. I remember the negotiation process as I made twelve. I, had, I was sitting in a Subway sandwich shop, and I was like, "I'm doing really good work." And I learned how to call C code from Visual Basic, and you should pay me two more dollars an hour. Like I remember that negotiation process, and then started to feel bad that I had never done my four year degree. Uh, my wife has several degrees. She's got. Three or four degrees. I'm looking up at the wall here because there are all my wife's degrees. She's got a master's degree, and then she went back to school and became a nurse. So I just wanted to get another degree. Not another degree. I wanted to get a degree. I wanted to finish a four-year degree. I wanted to finish. I wanted to be done. So she supported me by letting me go to school at night. Uh, And I did that for six or seven years until I got a call that my credit was expiring. Because after seven years – your 101 classes, your writing 101 and all that stuff, that falls off the other end because you have to finish your four-year degree in seven years. So I made a deal with the dean that if I taught classes at the college that they would waive that. 
So I was teaching C sharp and testing while I was simultaneously uh, taking classes, and then finally finished in 2003. So I've been doing software for money for 25 years, but I only got my degree a little bit ago. So you were both teaching and taking classes in addition to working. Yeah, yeah. It was basically like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every night for like, you know, six years, seven years. But you got to do that, right? You got to, right? The struggle is part of the journey. That's true. I mean, like, I'm I, I'm not trying to disrespect other people's journeys, but I'm happy with my journey because the struggle, and that means the catering jobs and the short order cook jobs and those things matter. And I am, I sometimes get a little frustrated when I see other people's journeys where it's like their feet never touched the ground and they went straight from their parents' minivan to Stanford to a job. And I'm like, that's fine. That's their journey. They didn't control their journey necessarily. But at the same time, there's character in sifting through a dump and there's character yeah. through one of my jobs was making salsa in a garbage can, 50 gallon garbage can. So I had to put on these big rubber things and like clean, you know mix the salsa you know what i mean like that's when you have jalapenos juice squirting in your eyes and you've got rubber gloves on and you're trying not to get your hair in the salsa that's character <laughs> right there <laughs> you know what i mean so again no disrespect if your feet if whoever's listening your feet never touch the ground that's fine but at the same time i i don't want my kids to float right into a quote-unquote hundred thousand dollar a year job i want them to have to so i think you're making a really good point scott about some people, they have a much more smooth transition, but some people have to kind of struggle and really, really push for something and that it becomes a part of who you are and it becomes a part of why you do what you do and that that story doesn't always get told. Right, right. And I find also that in this time where we want to be more inclusive and get more people into the technology, it is sometimes problematic, but also sometimes useful when a cisgendered straight white guy says, well, you know, I had a struggle too. The trick is not to make it about comparisons and not to try to make it about the oppression Olympics mm-hmm. because one shouldn't use their, their come up as a justification to be mean to somebody or as a way to juxtapose, well, well, you know, you think you had difficulties as a black woman. Let me tell you about the time I came Aww. up on a trailer. It's, it's not the oppression Olympics. It's, <laughs> this was my story. This is my, my struggle. But while there were financial issues, one of the things that's worth pointing out about the degree thing is that no one really needed me to get the four-year degree. People always say, well, why did you need to do it? You know, you were already 10 years into the industry, and it was for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I have uh, women and people of color on my team who are still getting questioned about their degree and where they went uh, to school, even though they're years in. You see what I'm saying? So you had that option. I had an option. I would argue that I did not need to go back and finish the degree because no one has ever asked me about my degree in the last 20 years of the 25 I've been doing software. Well, I know that there are people who are getting asked about their degree even now. So I think that that's why for some people getting a degree at a, at a, at a Northwestern or at a, at a fancy school matters more. I don't think I would even need to put my degree on my resume now that I have so many years in the in the biz. That I think is a privilege that I have. As a teacher, it makes a difference that you have a journey that wasn't smooth, that has some jaggedies in it that other people can relate to. One of the things I try to explain to my kids who are black and they are so they are they're mixed, but they're young black men, is that they have 
are going to have different struggles than I did. They won't have the financial struggles, right? But just as, I like to say to my sons that their crown was paid for. They just need to put it on to give them a sense of what has been done for them versus what hasn't, right? So there's a lot of reminders of what you have. We went to dinner yesterday and they were complaining about the food. And my wife and I still have, and this is, we've been married 20 years. We still have issues about food security. Like when Uh we're sitting around, we're thinking about our blessings and we're like, you have those moments, you know, those, those quiet, calm moments where you're just like, oh man, we are just really lucky. Like Mm -hmm. there's food in the house. You know what I mean? I was reminiscing with someone. I was in Atlanta a couple days ago and we're talking about like who had the most janky dinners. Like we used to have like eggs and oranges. What are we having for dinner? Well, I got some eggs and we got some oranges, right? Maybe we have some bread. 25, 30 years, 40 years later, we still think about those things. You see what I'm saying? And when you say that to people, they're like, oh, you're just being falsely humble. You're just being silly. I'm like, no, like that will mess you up. That stuff is part of you. So then when the nine-year-old is like, Ugh, you know, Indian food again, oh, <laughs> you're welcome, sir. I don't want to eat this. Well, then you don't have to eat. You're old enough to go to bed without a meal. Well, you can't send me to bed without a meal. I didn't say that. Food's here. You choose not to eat it. Step off. Well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat something. No, you eat this or you go to sleep. You know, like you have to have an appreciation of like, wow, you think just these these chickens slaughtered themselves, that this Indian food, these spices were shipped here. Like think about all the, and this is where it comes into systems thinking. Think about the systems that were in place from the people who made the stove to the people who killed the chicken to the people who brought the spices from India to make this meal that you're complaining about. Mm -hmm. Does that help? It does because it actually is twofold. One, it makes them realize that food doesn't make itself. That's why we have a garden, why we go to my brother's farm so that they understand that nothing is simply granted to you. Someone is digging that potato up while you complain about the fries. Let's think about the person who doesn't have health insurance because they're digging potatoes. And then it helps them think about systems thinking, which I think is more important than coding, which is a little bit of 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 an orthogonal conversation, but an interesting one. To debug a system, one needs to realize that there is, in fact, a system. You know, toaster doesn't work. The entitled child is like, oh, toaster is broken. Let's buy a new toaster. The systems thinking child is going to think about, all right, well, is it the is it electricity? Is it the knobby? Is it the outlet? Is it the fuse? Is it the ground fault interrupter? Is it the power? Think about all the systems that are there to make the toaster turn on. And that turns into these really interesting science conversations that will go on for an hour in our house because nice. the toaster didn't work. Uh, my reaction would be, I could use the oven or the stove. <laughs> fix the toaster, though. And that's and, and also systems thinking. <laughs> if is. the electricity it, is out, then the oven is not an option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I hear what you're saying. My, uh, I think we agree, though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I think systems thinking is both the biggest thing that we're coming to in code and that helps us more than anything with creating software systems and it's also a fascinating thing that's coming out of code because we finally have the opportunity to really study systems because we can change them so fast. And my secret hope, well, it's not very secret. My hope is that, that the software industry can change the world by teaching all of us more about systems thinking. 
I think that that is a very reasonable thing to hope for. And uh, I think that we need to catch the kids before they're 10 because the amount of after how after having now raised two kids up to 11, I realize that a 10 year head start is an eternity. You can't mm. snatch a 20 year old out of school in a trade and make them the same developer. You could make them developers, you can put them in a boot camp, but they will be different people with different paths. It's hard to teach systems thinking if one has spent 20 years of their life not thinking about systems. And boot camps will teach you for loops and syntax, but you'll always be a little bit behind unless it's naturally coming to you. You see what I'm saying? My kids can't code. They don't do, you know, it's too early. They're not, I keep them off the computer as much as possible. But they can problem solve. They can problem solve. There's systems thinking. I have conversations with my nine-year-old because we listen to podcasts in the car. We listen to Marketplace, which is his favorite podcast. He will talk to you about currency fluctuations and like how the dollar here goes against South African Rand and stuff like that and why those things matter. But yeah, he probably couldn't write his for loop to save his life. And I, and, I, and I would argue that they can pick up the syntax at some point, but you have to you have to get systems thinking early. So we need to teach systems thinking in first grade, second grade. I really like the focus on the, the systems thinking and the problem solving because I think it is way more inclusive. I think there's a lot of people who they're very intimidated by the idea of trying to learn how to code, but they are solving problems and making decisions all the time. And I don't think that they realize that those things are related. They think they're very separate things and they don't exactly. see that if they could bring them together, it's a very mm -hmm. powerful thing. Well said. And they're not giving themselves credit for that as well. This reminds me of when I was young and um, I didn't know as a kid, you know, that what my parents said was like work or important was different than like my play, which I thought was also really important. And I didn't understand like why I would get in trouble for being loud. Yeah. Play is important, but it can go to the other room. Well, to me, it was like adults were just getting to play at stuff that I didn't get to play at, like stuff I wanted. Uh, I used to have an obsession with getting mail. Like I really wanted mail. Oh, I remember those days. Because I wanted somebody like out in the world to know I existed and like want to talk to me. Oh, yeah. And my parents would be like, you don't want mail because, you know, that was mostly bills. But I didn't know that. Right. They wanted to talk to you to get your money. <laughs> I wanted money, too. Yeah, we we made them little accounts that we put five bucks in every month just so they get mail that shows their money growing. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> so you make the bank spend the money to send statements for five dollars. That's just it's again, it's it's system thinking, right? They don't do home ec anymore. So how does someone going to learn how to balance a checkbook if they've never seen a checkbook? And then someone might say, oh, I don't need checks. Well, how are you going to balance? How are you going to manage your money, right? You still got to think about it on a ledger, which, which is interesting. Here's an interesting question. I believe that there's some value in suffering, sometimes trite, sometimes manufactured, but minor suffering, and then you lift them above it. That might mean teaching someone C before you teach them Java, <laughs> make, them mal make them allocate their own memory, and then go, ah, don't worry about that. And that's Anti-Fragile, right? Anti-Fragile is a book by Nassim Taleb, and the concept is something is anti-fragile if a little bit of stress makes it stronger. Ooh, uh -oh. that is now my favorite thing, and I'm going to talk about it all the time and take full credit for it. <laughs> anti-Fragile. Okay, I'm going to pick that up. That's a really good idea. Right. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I like it. Right. But yeah, like you said, if it's too much stress then that can damage a person or turn them off from ever trying. 
which is interesting. So when I said before that maybe the kids won't eat tonight, that's not appropriate for a three-year-old or a five-year-old. But if a 12-year-old willfully refuses to eat the meal because they find it offensive when it's clearly not, missing one meal will not is not abuse. It is parenting. Right. The three or five-year-old is still unable to like calm their emotions enough to really see the option of eating or not. And they aren't given the option. You don't send a three-year-old away. Well, the 12-year-old's like, hey, here's the food, finish it, but there won't be any food later. That's the trick. Sometimes the kids are like, well, I'll just eat oranges, you know, and like that, you know, I can work the system. No, you don't have to eat. You don't have to eat the whole plate, but, but eat until you're done. But here's the food. It's good food. Yeah, I like that. Anti-fragile. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, my kids, they would totally get away with fixing themselves dinner later because I don't care what they do if if they do it themselves <laughs> and don't ask me to make the food. <sighs> I try to make things collaborative. We make our dinners together and I try to get them to make it with us. You are a better parent than I am. Well, I think I may just not have been broken yet, but maybe in the next year or two, I think that at some point I'm getting to that like, Oh, Guys, just go to bed, you know, just that, that, that level of like frustration, which is born after 10, 15 years of child rearing is why by the time they're 20, it's like, all right, just, just get out of my house. I'm just done. <laughs> you talked about your software development career, but you said that you're actually a teacher. Oh, yeah. So there's this ridiculous kind of myth of the 10X programmer and the myth of the rock star programmer. And just because I happened to start a blog 20 years ago and it's, it's still happening, and just because I started a podcast 12 years ago, because I am still here, people somehow ascribe longevity to, oh, that handsome one's an amazing programmer. I'm a mm. perfectly competent average programmer. Right? I'm a B, B-plus programmer. So being loud isn't necessarily being a good programmer. So when I meet people, they're like, oh, my goodness, your blog, your podcast, you're such an amazing programmer. It's like, well, you got you had me right up until the programmer part. Right? You have no actual proof of my skill. You, you are ascribing those attributes to me because of my visibility. Right. You know, there's all kinds of amazing athletes who have tons of money. That doesn't mean that they're experts in finance. Right. You can't mm -hmm. ascribe those. To, you must have a lot of money. Because you have, you must be really good at finance because you have all this money. Well, no, you know, the, those things are un, unrelated. You know, correlation doesn't equal causality. So then I finally figured out the issue is that I have the blog and the podcast because I just am overflowing with enthusiasm for certain topics to the point where I have to tell people that sounds more like a teacher than a programmer. So I decided that that's what I am. Do you think that teaching talent makes you more valuable on a team? It is also because teachers drive to – when you have an argument on a team and you're trying to um, – Consensus? Yeah, consensus building. Like you want to like create tension, create lowercase a arguments, and then bring everyone together in the scope of the 45-minute class. Well, that is an interesting question, but that's against what little Johnny just said. So, Anna, why don't you back up your you – know, and then you pit them against each other again – in a gentle and safe place where they think they're having an argument, but you ultimately know the direction the class is going to go. Oh, well, we've all learned a lot. So it turns out you all were closer in your opinions than we thought. And then we all leave friends. That's what we do have been doing in teams designing features for the last 20 years. So do you wind up moderating those discussions? If there's one thing I'm good at is panel moderation. 
And I say that as someone with imposter syndrome who is just now learning to say that I'm good at certain things. Oh, good job. Seriously, this is a big deal. Like the last 500 episodes of my podcast, eh, in the last uh, 85 have been pretty awesome. Out of the last 600, the last 85, I feel pretty good about. Like just being able to say that my podcast is a good podcast has taken me 20 years of, of emotional, like, I don't know. I, I know what I'm good at. And, it, and that's, it's important to be able to accept that, yeah, I am good at that. You clearly don't get your validation externally. You got your degree for your own purposes. And it took a while for you to decide that your podcast was good, whereas everybody else was. I need to lie down on the, uh, on the therapy couch here. You're, you're reading my life here. I mean, that's a lot of podcasts. And I know people tell you all the time that your podcasts are awesome. And you get invited to like keynote all the conferences. And you do a great job at that, by the way. And, and if you ask anyone who knows me, well, look, okay, let's talk about this. So I was at a conference last Thursday in Atlanta fantastic conference you should go to next year. It's called WeRise.Tech. We Rise Women in Tech. It's in Atlanta. It's a women's conference. And they asked me to give an, uh, a little opening to one of the keynote panels. And I freaking agonized about that. Okay, I want to be a good ally, but I'm a man. I'm going to be at the women's conference. How can I be the best man that I can be at the women's conference? I sat with my friend Safia Abdullah. She's amazing. She's Captain Safia uh, on uh, Twitter. And she went over my slides and like, you know, emotionally held me for two days as I agonized over this 10 minutes to introduce this panel. And afterwards, of course, everyone's, everyone's gushing and it went great and like, oh, you're amazing or whatever. And I talked to Safia, who's, uh, who's a, a, a kind of a – she's on the come up right now. She's 20 and she's about to graduate from school. And she gave an actual one-hour keynote. And I was like, and that's what like freaking out before a keynote looks like. She's like, I didn't know that that's what people did. And I was like, everybody does that. The amount of effort required to make something look effortless – it's a lot. Yeah. It's immense. She's like, I didn't know that you freaked out. I said, I freak out every time. Because if you don't, it'll look half-assed. Yep. It'll look like you half-assed it. So I went through that whole thing. I double-checked every joke. I double-checked every clip art. I went through the whole thing multiple times. We were looking for punctuation towards the end of this process together. And the other thing that is I didn't do it alone, and this is really important. I actually – thanked her on Instagram as being my conference buddy because we were balancing that whole introvert extrovert thing where it's like, well, we are we introverts? Are we extroverts? So we skipped the lunches because it was just too much. And then we went across the street and had tacos just to be elsewhere to get our brains in the right way. So I appreciated her ability to help me thread the needle at this conference as I tried to be a benefit as opposed to being a why are you here? And all of that is comes from a place of insecurity that is ultimately driven by wanting to do the best that one can do. I know it's a long answer, but it's the truth. So the insecurity, it's also part of the journey. I think that everyone has to feel a little bit in over their head. Treading water makes you a better swimmer. Yeah. This gets to your anti-fragile thing. It does. Which I'm adopting my, as my thing now. When you said earlier that just because you do something a long time doesn't make you really good at it. I understood what you were saying. But then as you're talking about things like, you know, after your 500th episode of a podcast, it also feels like you wouldn't have made it that far if you weren't good. So it's hard to reconcile this idea that just because you're doing it a long time, you're not necessarily good. Why couldn't I just be mediocre for years? 
Because I think mediocrity is more than just your one instance of ability. It will start to bring you down because you won't have the other pieces that it takes in order to keep going past mistakes. And a lot of what makes people become really great is because they make mistakes, they learn from those mistakes, they keep going. And people who are more mediocre, they don't keep going, which is why they don't increase their abilities. Well, I would say, though, that there are people I've seen I've met some PhDs that were not very smart, and I was like shocked that this person got a PhD. And I asked my wife how they did it, and they said that no one ever told them to stop. And sometimes getting an advanced degree just shows that you won't give up, not that you're necessarily naturally talented. That's so I true. think that there, I always have this, I have this little pithy thing that I talk about where do you have 20 years experience, or do you have the same year 20 times? Yes, but I think there's a difference between when you are basically being supported by an entire other entity. Like if you're in a program like that, it's not just mm-hmm. you. It's also all the people who oh. are working with you who are on the line for that. I see. Who are supporting your mediocrity yes. over time. Okay. I think yes. that with blogs and with podcasts and stuff, one could just blindly host their own thing and just march forward. But you wouldn't have listeners. Yeah. I don't know how many listeners I have. I don't look at the stats. I can't. If I look at the stats, it'll freak me out. So I just don't look at them. I haven't thought about how many listeners I have. I well, look that, more at, you don't. At you don't necessarily have to know how many listeners you have, but the fact that they are talking to you means that whatever you're doing is enough for them to come out of their way to make sure you know about it. But I only get two or three emails about the podcast a week. So I don't know how many people are listening. It's the emails that... That tell me, like the comments matter more than the views. You guys are trying to make me feel better about myself. It's not going to (laughs) work. No, no, no. For years. Well, I was thinking thinking about what you said about how ridiculous it is, this concept of a 10x engineer. Mm. And I was thinking about why that could be ridiculous. And I think there's this. This thing that we do, especially in America, where we have this idea of like the self-made man and you're supposed to be super intelligent and able to do everything all by yourself. And the more you can do by yourself, the more of like a hero you seem to become. But that's not the truth about how we do things for real in this country. Usually Mm -hmm. what happens is that a group of people who are not all these like superheroes, those this group of people who are a little bit better than average do something incredible. That's what normally happens. Mm. But we kind of have this fairy tale about how like this one person who has all these super abilities made the world yeah. change. It's, but that's not it's the, the truth. American myth, right? Walt yeah. Disney built Disney World by himself with his own hands. Yes, exactly. The 10X engineer thing being ridiculous is because, you know, so what? You do that all by yourself. If you can't build a community around you, then right. it doesn't really do anything. Well, and then I think that myth, though, gets perpetuated when those people, in fact, do exist, right? So Linus is that good. He balances it out, of course, because he's a jerk, right? But then someone says, well, that anecdote proves that there are 10X engineers. So so there are. Okay. I'm going to be the anti-Scott Hanselman here because – I wrote a blog post about 10X engineers like on Sunday, and I can tell you that this morning it crossed 35,000 views. What did you say, Jessica? Uh, So I said that absolutely 10X engineers exist. They're the ones that know the code inside out and backwards and forwards, usually because they wrote it. Well, that's different. You saying her TLDR says the productive development happens when one person knows the system intimately because they wrote it. 
That's true. Linus and this is the brilliant Linus. part. This is the brilliant part of her thing. This is in conflict with growing a system beyond what one person maintains. That's very smart. A 10x engineer definitely exists if they're working on their own software and they're the only one that's ever worked on it. Mm-hmm. That's deep. I like it. And and it's true. And sometimes that's useful in what you want. Mm. Yeah. So if you, this doesn't preclude the idea that some developers are 10 times more talented or whatever, or have a larger working memory and can hold a larger system in their head. Personally, I like being the person who can figure out somebody else's system because that's way harder than greenfield development. So that's entertaining. I guess my point is that it's not healthy to chase the myth. Let's rather than making declarative statements like, like it doesn't exist. I think that they're not as common as we think they are. And it's not a thing to go for. Like I'm a little sad. I'm being totally real with you. I'm going to bring it, bring it down and be real. I'm a little pissed off that Ryan Reynolds has my career. Okay. From the time he was on two guys, a girl in a pizza shop, I knew that that was my role. I was supposed to be famous. And then he became Green Lantern and now he's like a A level star. And I'm just like, I've got like dad bod and I'm in Portland and I'm sad about that. Okay. He is the 10X person and I am not. And that's fine. And I can't fixate on Ryan Reynolds, that jerk who has my career. If one is absolutely like, I've got to be hyperproductive, I've got to be hyperproductive, it'll, it'll chew them up from the inside, won't it? Like, do you think that we should put them on pedestals or should we just accept that they are, there are some occasional unicorns and we just let Ryan Reynolds live? I think we should recognize that having a 10X developer holds the rest of the team back and it's a trade-off. I agree. I like it. Now I have to destroy Ryan Reynolds. Okay, 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 okay. Did y'all read that Amanda Palmer post about Joan this week? About fucking Joan? Okay, I will find this and link it. It's about exactly what you're talking about. It's about that one person who is what you feel like you should be. But of course, you're comparing your insides to their outsides and they have their own problems. And I really, it's just not about comparison. It's a great post. And I find myself experiencing this right now with you, Scott, because you are like a great podcaster and speaker and, and keynoter and teacher and, and you're a great parent and you're super humble about it. Thank you. And so that, but, but <laughs> I'm learning how to say thank you. It's like what my, uh, my VP of engineering, who's one of the 10 X developers on our team told me today. Yes, he knows the system inside and out, but I wrote a good blog post the other day. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's is that helpful. <laughs> well, I'm pretty proud of my blog post because clearly it like it taught something, right? It gave sure. people words for something they already knew. That's the formula right there for a good blog post. Yeah. To to crystallize what we all knew in our DNA. Exactly. Everyone has experienced this. They're like, yes, these are the words for it. And uh, like anti-fragile. Yes, which totally like has changed my life. I'm gonna incorporate it into everything I do. There you go. You have a new name for something you already were. Now you can feel good about it. I don't know. I think the other thing about the whole 10X engineer concept is that it's not replicable. You can't just like take a 10X engineer and put them with other engineers and make more 10X engineers. Like that doesn't happen. And so it's nice that you do have them. They exist and they, they can do great things, but they can't grow themselves. Whereas like somebody like you, Scott, who's a teacher, that's exactly what you do is you put you with other people and then you can make them better. 
And I think in the big picture, that's way more important because it's very hard to be able to take information, synthesize it, put it in a way that another person can not only digest it, but also can take it on as their own and then grow from there. That's a really hard thing to do. But that is the process of how you make new things Mm. and not necessarily that one person who can do everything because they usually cannot teach that skill. Yeah. A 10x developer is still only plus 10, but a teacher is multiplicative. Yeah. I don't like having to constantly justify being nice online. I've gotten into arguments with other engineers that are like, <laughs> you know, talk is cheap. Show me the code. I don't need to be nice, you know, because I'm always emphasizing how important niceness is. And they're always saying, well, nice doesn't compile. It's like, do you really want to go to work with a 10x who is mean? Like, that's the unicorn. Can we be 10x productive and also 10x nice? Like, why are those things not always like connected? Right, right. At Atomist, we have three 10xers in different parts of the system, and they are all as nice as can be. Mm-hmm. And so it's fine. It's a startup, right? It's supposed to take risks. And yes, if Christian gets hit by a bus, it'll be a long time before we can modify Rug CLI. But we can take that risk. And it doesn't cost as much because he is super nice. Did you know that I went viral for being nice last week? That's awesome. <laughs> Sweet. No, like literally, like this actually is a thing. So take a look at this tweet and look at the numbers on the, on the likes and the retweets. As of the time of this recording, it has 83,000 retweets and 184,000 likes. So this young woman named Halima Adan from uh, Somalia was on the cover of Allure in her hijab. And this fella shows up and basically is mean saying you're wearing a burqa and you're oppressing, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I replied, if you hit the, go to the next picture. And I said, well, that's silly. It was a hijab, not a burqa. Watch the video interview with her. She talks all about, she literally, the entire video is her talking about her decision to put the hijab on, Right. And then the guy says, oh, well, I'm guilty as charged. I didn't watch the video, and I don't know the difference between a burqa and a hijab. And then I said, thanks. And then another person comes in. Oh, and I, and I provided a little context. I'm like, well, well, a burqa is when you're covered in black, and a hijab is a headscarf. It's quite fashionable. And then someone else, a third party, as with Twitter, jumps in and says, well, actually, no, a burqa is not covered in black. It's a cloak and covers the face, including the eyes. You use a mesh to see through the face. I replied, and I said, oh, thank you for the additional info. I'm sorry, I was trying to get the point across somewhat quickly. And then the third person goes, oh, no worries. I was trying to clarify just in case. And then the tweet that went viral was, I have never in my life seen an argument being settled so calmly and respectfully. Think about what it says about our <laughs> national discourse. That is a remarkable discourse. Twitter exchange. Scroll down. There's pictures of like animated <laughs> gifs of people crying. Like People just settled this like two adults. And then the other tweets around this tweet went viral like – are they Canadian? And they were like, breaking news. <laughs> they are not Canadians. And then one of the people came through and said, oh, well, actually, I am Canadian. So then the guy's like, we have a Canadian. We have, we repeat, we have one Canadian. This tweet has gone so viral that I sent a winky face to the guy who did the screenshots. And that tweet has 1,200 likes. Oh my it's the craziest Good, thing. And all I did was not crisp with someone on Twitter. What does that say about our worldwide discourse that simply not being a jerk online is 200,000 like, likes? But at the but same we, time... 
we're starved for kindness. We are. But I, and I to, to pop it all the way off the stack to what you were talking about before, I feel like it that tweet it's just a tweet and it'll be forgotten next week, but I feel like it validated the last 25 years of my experience online because I don't give bile a permalink. There's no URI you can find where I'm being mean. I might be poking jokes at the Skype team or the Outlook team for being making crash crashy software, but I'm not there's no vindictive URL you can say there look at Hansel and being such a vindictive jerk. And I tell that to everyone. Like that's what you've got to do is be kind and do it for the long haul. And it will come back to you eventually. My point is that people are like reading people online, reading them hard. You know what I mean? Like, oh I wish a would and then they go off and those permalinks stay forever they get screenshot so you have the point that meanness one piece of meanness is forever whereas kindness pays off in the long haul so my wife thinks that it gets us better parking spaces we call it parking karma oh so i have amongst my many privileges the most amazing parking karma that you will ever see. And this isn't a one-time thing. This is driving into a concert five minutes before it starts, just as someone's backing out and I'm three slots from the first parking row. (laughs) And every single time my wife just goes, I have no idea how this is possible at the mall. So you can find a parking space in San Francisco. I can find a parking space anywhere and I can do it in 10 minutes. And I told her, I think it's because we're nice and we've been doing it. And now I live in fear of not being nice because I don't want to lose my parking karma because it's really impressive. <laughs> fear is also part of the journey. <laughs> exactly. Everyone else is afraid. I must be nice or I'll go to hell. No, I really need my parking karma. So hell is the top of the parking garage. I would never, I've never even seen the top of the parking garage because I park <laughs> A1. That's how nice he is. I do the opposite. I go straight to the top of the parking garage. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried it's going to collapse. And then I, say, yeah. I guess you'll just surf <laughs> your way down when it collapses. I'll get some exercise on the way down and back up. That's my fear. Yeah. So you've decided you're a teacher. You teach with your podcast. You teach on your team. You teach at conferences. What's your favorite thing that you've ever taught? My favorite thing I've ever taught. I like life lesson type stuff more than teaching software. At the conference last week, I did a whole thing on personal branding, and I localized it to women and ran it by a bunch of women to make sure that it wasn't garbage. And the idea of how can I be successful and visible while still being safe online? So I really enjoyed that. Like where It used to be called like personal branding or personal marketing, but more it's just like maintaining your online resume as a software developer. The talk is called The Social Developer. I really like that because I always open it up to questions and then, you know, it makes a better talk. Like my blog is okay, but my comments are great. You know, I, I, I curate my mm. comments very much. And the commenters on my blog are better than my blog. They don't even realize it, but they're what makes the blog go. Like my friend Lovey has this uh, blog, L-U-V-V-I-E.com. But the, the Love Nation, which is all of her followers, are as funny or interesting as her blog. Because she's cultivated that, right? So having a good talk where you talk at people is one thing. But if you, I like talking to groups of 50 people and then having it devolve into me moderating a talk show where all of the people do that. So when I gave my talk on the social developer, 
I, I'm, keep in mind, I'm at a women's conference, right? So I come out and I said, you know, hi, everyone. I'm Scott, and I'm going to give this talk on being a social developer online. And I realize that there's a certain irony where there's 50 women here uh, at a women's conference, and I happen to be a man. So, you know, by nature of the fact that this is uh, a conference where I'm presenting, I'm going to basically mansplain here for an hour. And uh, how can we make that a positive experience for you? I said, what you can do is you can interrupt me. If anything I say doesn't fit your experience, interrupt and let's have that conversation. And I think I got 10, 15 minutes into my talk until someone said, well, I don't think that's really true. And that was a 10 minute and it was moderated and they were kind because I'd set them up for kindness. And it was amazing. It ended up going 90 minutes and it was only a 60 minute talk. They wouldn't leave. And we eventually got kicked out of the room and it felt like we had all had an experience together. Oh, that's awesome. I feel it was because I'm patting myself on the back a little bit. Uh, I don't want my cape to get too heavy, but I feel like I set up a safe space. I told them it was okay to interrupt me, and that diffused the whole like dude in the space kind of issue. And the result was my talk was multiplied by their input. You know what I mean? It wasn't a whole series of each of us well actuallying each other. It was like, oh well, that wasn't oh. that wasn't my. They, they could have done that. It could have been like I'm going to make a bunch of declarative statements, and a bunch of people in the audience are going to well actually. Right, which hurts in any direction. But instead, it was here is my experience online. Here are the things that you need to do. Here are the here are the things that women I've talked to have said about their experiences online and what you need to do to be safe. And a couple people were like, "Well, that wasn't my experience. Their experience is valid." So then the question is, how many experiences can we get out in the scope of the talk such that people can go and make their own decision? That's the great thing about advice, right? You don't have to take it. And it was, it was great. You don't have to go to bed without dinner if you don't. You don't have to go to bed without dinner. Look at you. That was brilliant. Yes. So doing talks like that about life talks, productivity talks, um, helping people explore how they found success and leading them towards success, kind of like, like a less slimy Tony Robbins. Those are the things I like doing. So my talks on productivity, my talks on personal branding, my talks on team building are more fun than my talks on coding. Because they are greater than code. That was awesome. <laughs> that was the best. So we should stop right away. <laughs> so, Scott, we usually end our show with reflections, where each of the three of us gets to say what it was about the show that they're going to take away and think about, or references, or points of action. Yeah. Anti-Fragile was my takeaway. I'm going to go and read the book. Cool. I have one from just the last few minutes was Scott was talking about the community of commenters on his blog. My favorite thing about this podcast, as much as I love the podcast, I love the Slack community. Yeah. We have a Slack community where everyone who donates any amount to our Patreon gets an invitation to the Slack and people in there are just so nice. And they have interesting conversations and they help each other out, which is nice to watch. My takeaway is I really like the approach that you've taken to how you built your career, Scott. I really like the way that you tend to look around you for others to show you the way, as opposed to assuming that you know the way, which I think makes people want to follow you. And I like that there's a, a certain kind of completeness to that. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's, that's, that is a very nice compliment. And I think it's one, unlike compliments that make you feel awkward and uncomfortable, I think I will own that compliment and, I, and thank you for it. Yay, we can turn it in Awesome. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was cool. 